Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsession will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dark out for a it's Jackie Cation. Welcome to the Dork Forest. You know the websites, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com, TheDorkForest.com, FamilyPetAncestry.com. I bought a lot of domain names, you guys. And then AllThingsComedy.com slash Jackie Cation, all lowercase, is where this will make an excellent horcrux, my new comedy special, where you can get a $5 download of that. Anyway, let's do the credits. Mike Rickberg composed and sang the song you just heard, the Mac, and he'll do his version of the Mexican hat dance at the end of the program. He is a, a great musician, and if you ever get a chance to see him play live, you should do that. Patrick Brady's going to fix this audio. Vilmosh uh, does my website, JackieCation.com, where you can buy T-shirts. You can get hooded sweatshirts. You can get a CD or a DVD, hard copies of everything that's available on iTunes and Amazon. And um, you can always email me. By the way, if you ever need to email me about anything, Jackie at JackieCation.com. You want to tell me about how how much you're loving the show. You can review the show on iTunes. You can, um, I don't know, you can buy a sandwich. I don't know what you can do. You can do whatever you want. But other than that, uh, stand-up comedy. I do stand-up comedy. This week I'm actually home in Los Angeles. So check my Twitter feed at JackieCation and uh, you'll find out where I'm doing stand-up comedy this week. And then you'll know things. But let's get into it, because it's a fascinating episode. This one's a good one, you guys. Hey, it's Jackie Cation. I am sitting in my living room with Brian Upton. Brian Upton, you've been on the show before, but mostly remotely. Um, yeah, the last time I was on your show, oh, God, it was like... The, it was much more primitive. Um, you didn't have these nice <laughs> microphones then. I think we were all like talking into phones or something. Yeah, I think it was you, Scott. Uh, it was, um, Scott Rogers and Andy. It was, and, it was about game design. Yeah. And it was all about game design in general. And nobody really got to talk, uh, because all three of you know too much and you were all like, and it was, and it's only an hour. So uh, the, I've been trying to have you on just to talk for yourself. Like I had Scott on. And then he chose to talk about Disneyland. And then, <laughs> and Andy's on whatever. I'm surprised he's not here today, quite honestly. He died. Whenever the game design comes up, he's like, well, you know, I could, I could probably come on and uh, have some good questions. And I'm like, yes, you are welcome at any time. But he went to fill my car up with gas and that makes him a, an excellent human being. So he's a production assistant he's, today. He, yeah. Today of- he's more PA guy. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. So, okay. So Brian Upton, you are on Twitter at BB Upton. B is in Brian. B is in Blair. You as an Upton, Brian, B.B. Upton. And then uh, you have a new book out, which is what has inspired us to finally gather. And it's about game design. And it is called <laughs> The Aesthetic of Play. Yes. So that is a tree in the forest that we are going to go and find. And I'm going to need a compass and I'm going to need uh, a water <laughs> bottle. So do you have a website? Um, no, actually, um, the, the book has a website. The book okay. has a website. It's, it's from MIT Press. Okay. And so if you go to MIT Press and search for either me, Brian Upton, or right. uh, The Aesthetic of Play, um, you can find it there. It'll all come together. Yeah. That'll be perfect. And we are going to talk about The Aesthetic of Play, but at lunch, which we just had, uh, you were telling me that you read last year an amazing book about the history of D&D or why it started or how the – what – what happened? It, it was so gloriously geeky in a way that I really <laughs> love because it, because it also tied in with 
um, my own memories of Dungeons and Dragons because I, I started playing in in the seventies when it was really kind of marginal and all the artwork Super new, right? Yeah, it was, it was brand new and all the artwork was very, very like roll your own kind of barely <laughs> able to draw and it was kind of hinky in a variety of ways and I really okay. love that about early D anD D and so the book I was reading it's it's by a guy named John um, John Peterson yeah. and it's called Playing at the World okay and it's this encyclopedic history. Of the invention of D and D, it's like 600 pages leading up to the release of Dungeons and Dragons, and basically he, he goes back and he traces all these weird he, subculture threads that fed into what eventually became D and D. So do, it, it's not like a history of Gary Gygax; it's a history of what leads to Gary Gygax. Yeah, yeah I mean Gary Gygax is in it, obviously, sure. but 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 the actual like development of the rules is kind of like a little coda at the end. What, what it's really about is all the different um, influences. So he goes back and looks at. Um, how wargaming was invented um, as a way to train um, um, soldiers oh. in Germany. And then... Tabletop? Tabletop wargaming. And then he goes through... H.G. Um, 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 Wells had his own tabletop wargaming system called Tiny Wars, which he was like... Super, he would crawl around and play with toy soldiers on the floor and shoot cannons, and he had rules for them. And he was 35 years old. Oh, yeah. He was a grown and, man doing yeah, all this. And nobody, yeah. and nobody gave him... Well, I'm sure somebody gave him some shit, but... Yeah, but you can't give H.G. Wells shit. Well, yeah, you he's, can't give H.G. Wells <laughs> shit. He's, he's above it. He's above your judgment. Yeah, and so there's all these interesting like trickles of things that eventually fed into what became wargaming as a hobby in the 20th century. Um, there are these sort of weird precursors where things didn't quite get started. Um, the, the designer, um, Norman Belgettis, who was, is famous for a lot of sort of art deco sort of stuff, um, was apparently really into his own homegrown gaming system that he played with his little circle of intellectual friends in his New York apartment. Whoa, wait a minute. So the Belgatis himself is a, is like an interior designer, an architect? Or? Yeah, just a general designer. I mean, he, okay. he, he designed furniture, he designed um, buildings, he designed aircraft. Oh, okay. Um, he's an industrial designer. Okay. And it, it's sort of very famous for creating that, that sort of distinctive art Deco look. I mean, oh. he was he was he was really innovative at a time when that mattered. Oh, fair enough. Right. Yeah. Was- but he also was fascinated with simulation, and so he had he built an entire landscape out of cork that he kept in his New York apartment, and he had a, a, this super elaborate war game that was played with thousands of pushpins as the markers, and he would have his like uh, his smart set of New York intellectuals <laughs> over, and they'd all crawl around on the floor and and move pushpins. <laughs> And fight little wars. And what year is this? Uh, this is the 1920s or 30s. 20s and 30s? Yeah. So, so like Algonquin round table times. Yeah. Yeah. But with, with gaming. But with gaming, <laughs> which having the same witty conversations that we all do about lycanthropes. Yeah. And, uh, so, but he, it was a, it was a war game system kind of? Yeah, but, well, the, but thing is, the, the system's completely lost. Um, it, um, we know that it really? involved cork boards and pushpins. Okay. But it, 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 um, what's interesting about this book is that it shows all these things that kind of were gestures towards what became wargaming, but never quite went anywhere. So nobody built on um, Tiny Wars, for example. It yeah. flared up and then went away. Nobody built on Belgettis' system. And there, there were other things like that. And it wasn't until they the 1950s. Out or something. Yeah. In okay. the 1950s, it really started turning into a real hobby. And it was that hobby that later led to the environment that allowed for D&D to be created. Okay. So, I mean, because I would think, like, because back in Roman days, right, they would fill the Colosseum and have fake naval battles, right? Yeah. Now Machia. Uh, yeah, is that what it's called? That's called. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> and, uh, so, but that is like, I mean, they were not to scale. They were small. They were scaled. They weren't to scale. So they were small boats, uh, fighting. And, um, and so what, 
that had to lead event. I mean, cause like, like all gaming systems went forward and, and that was, and then I remember someone like in the, I, I remember in the, reading some fiction novel written in the 1800s where people were recreating like Napoleonic battles. It, that was probably the Kriegspiel. And that was, that was a German invention. Okay. And it, it's really interesting because. How do you spell Kriegspiel? It's an awesome um, German word. K-R-I-E-G-S-P-I-E-L. I good believe. guess, good guess. I like it. And, uh, which is literally just war game. Okay. German. Um, but that time there's only one, so they could call it the Kriegspiel. <laughs> um, and, um, it started off, um, gaming kind of went away as this, people didn't think about gaming as simulation. Up through the classical period and the Renaissance, they didn't think about they were actually doing something that mapped onto the real world. Okay. And the, 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 one of the big innovations of the Kriegspiel was that it was actually treated as a model for how things would unfold in the real world. Um, okay. the guy who invented it was a, a German count and he invented it as a way to train, um, German soldiers. And so it wasn't intended to be a fun thing to play. I mean, obviously you it know, was you war know. simulations before. Before they became electronic or whatever. Yeah. They were the first – and, 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 and this was a big deal that you yeah. could actually simulate because previously, I mean, people's idea was like, oh, you, you get a bunch of guys together and they're all tough and you go out and beat people up. Right, right. You could practice sword fighting. You could practice shooting, but you can't practice – and you could practice marching, I suppose. Right, but you couldn't practice strategy. The idea right. You could actually like um, like – Play out something on a board, and then that would apply to something in the real world. That was that was revolutionary. Right, and right. It was, it was it was a huge deal for the Germans when they invented this. I mean, that once once um, the French and the English found out that they were doing this, like, oh, we have to have one of these as well. And so well, it, escalating it, the it was like a yeah, <laughs> like like um, what is that called when uh, nuclear prol- proliferation? Uh, the war, the escalating. Oh, um, what the, what's the mutual word? Mutual assured th- destruction. Sure, I don't yeah. care. It's, uh, it's <laughs> the words I'm thinking, but it's because previously there was only chess, right? Right. And chess is it teaches you some things, right? But you know, like you know, like. But it's not. It, but horsemen can run to either side. I don't know. It's, right, right. There are different. There's different ranged attacks and different this type of things. And and there are there is in chess. But it. But I I can see how this. Kriegspiel. Is yes. That, all right. Kriegspiel would be um just at a more minutia level and, and yeah. more realistic level using well, it wasn't it wasn't and it wasn't designed to be fun i mean the idea was that you would you would you'd have a referee and you'd be very serious about it because you were you were really trying to learn it was intended as a teaching tool but but I mean, everybody then figured out like wow this is this is really fun yeah i want to play that again yeah <laughs> yeah well, it's like it's like um it's it, it's like airplane simulations where you're like no no you're supposed to be learning how to fly the plane and you're like yes but it's really fun to also fly the pretend plane right so, exactly yeah yeah. Okay. And so, and so gradually it became, you know, the fun aspect, um, became more prominent, but there's still this, there's this interesting split, which Peterson goes into in the book about right. the distinction between, um, gameism and simulationism and gameism. Um, that's, that's, that is, there's things you do in a game design that make it fun to play right. and fun to play doesn't necessarily make it realistic. And so there's always this tension between like, are we accurately simulating what's going on? Is this teaching us something about the real world or, or are we just doing this because it's entertaining? And this is, this is present in, in modern in role every- playing. Well, yeah, in, in games as well. I mean, yeah. um, so like uh, one of the first um, um, video games that I worked on um, was the original Rainbow Six. Um, and that was, there was a tension we faced all the time. I don't um, know that game. Oh, you you know they worked in Rainbow Six? I never. Yeah, what was what oh, system? So, well, all right. Oh no, this is this is a uh, this was on PC. Oh, it was a PC game. It was a PC Rainbow game. Six. Well, and then it got ported to um, like everything, and it's okay. uh, and it's still around now. But um, it was the uh, um, it was the original one that I designed, and um, it was this. 
there's this really interesting tension because we wanted it to be fun. I mean, we wanted people to buy it, but it was a Tom Clancy branded game. And Tom Clancy's brand is all about, oh, you're getting like the inside information. This is oh, how it right, really right. is. And so we would have all of these arguments over like, well, can we make people move a little faster? How fast can we make them realistically run? How many, how many gunshots could someone realistically take? Because, oh, because if you make you it really realistic, well, yeah, because if you make it really realistic, I mean, I mean, real war is kind of scary and boring. And, and, and there's a lot of sitting around time. There's a lot of sitting around. There's a lot of like, like things that happen really fast. You never figure out why something happened. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. there's a lot of chaos that's not fun. I mean, it's, it's not like yeah. war is not designed to be a fun experience. And so trying to figure out where you walk the line between simulation and game. Brian, can I please have a t-shirt that says war is not designed to be a fun experience? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, yeah, so the, 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 yeah, so try, try, try and, cause those Tom Clancy books, people read them and go, well, that's what it's really like, the Illuminati man. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so to try, and, the, and they wanted that in the game. Yeah, what we realized is that people wanted the feeling of that in the game. Cause if we made it really real, yeah. then, um, it felt unreal because it was so, like, um, boring that it, your people are like, oh, well, it's gotta be more exciting than this. And so we, right. we, 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 we Tried to create the illusion of reality. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like okay. if, you, if, you, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. I mean, we, were, <laughs> we were like, uh, how can we f- make it so that people believe they're getting what it's really like when they're actually not? Right, because they wouldn't want if because they, they wouldn't buy it, and they wouldn't play it if it were what it were really like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be the math class of their not dreams. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who would like that. I mean, I mean, right. part I mean, part of what's interesting when you look at this is that people. Um, have different tastes and some people really like really hardcore simulations. Right. But that's a really tiny, dorky niche. There's a very niche group where, where it's interesting when video games were created that, that it was, or it, and, and any, any game. I mean, they start, they kind of start out with the nerds playing them. Right. And then the rest of the world goes, well, I kind of want it, but you're going to have to dumb it down for me. Yeah. Or you're going to have to do something. Not, not dumb, you know. You have to make it more fun for me to make it possible. Like here, like uh, champions, mm-hmm. there's too much math. I don't want to play. <laughs> I don't want to play, even though the excitement of rolling 37 dice is something I do want to do. So if everyone wants to do the math around me and then I'm allowed to roll 37 dice, I win. Yeah. One of the things that's charming about early Dungeons and Dragons is the fact that it was made by people who were really into simulation. Okay. And so you have all these strange vestigial bits of simulation that are stuck in there like, um, here are rules for 20 different types of pole arms. So <laughs> I know the difference between a glaive and a glaive guisarme and a bardiche <laughs> and a halberd and we're going to have different rules for each one of these. And because how of their it. range or because of how tall they are? Well, because, I mean, because they were all this grew out of of people doing medieval simulation, and okay. so if you're if you're trying to recreate the Battle of Agincourt, well, it kind of matters what pole oh. arms people have. Right, right. And so, actually, I don't think there would be pole arms at Agincourt. No, it was more knights versus. I'm exaggerating here. Okay, because <laughs> so I, I know people will call me on this. No, they it was more might. longbowmen versus mounted knights okay. and lances. But um, but they but all this Thank makes a difference. Yourself. Yes, all, all, all these things make a difference. If yeah. you're really into like like let's recreate medieval warfare, that the, you know minutia of armor and weaponry makes a difference. And that started in the 50s, according to the the study of this sort of thing. 
um, where people were like, popular I, wargaming yeah. really got started. For, I mean, it was it was really um, the board game manufacturer Avalon Hill that got it that made it mass market. When when was when did that when um, they released um, a game called um, Tactics? And I want to say it was like fifty two or fifty three. I probably really? have that wrong. But close. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then so you had um, miniature wargaming that had kind of been trickling along. Well, people basically people would buy toy, toy soldiers and create rules for playing the toy soldiers. And okay. That, that, that had been going on for fifty years at that point, but it was very very small. Right. And then Avalon Hill came along and said, "Hey, we can." They they started using hex maps. Okay. And they started actually. Why, um, why hex maps? What is it a, is there a geometric reason to yes. simulate terrain or something? Well, okay, so, so for, the first impulse is to use squares. But the problem you realize if you use squares is that you want to move diagonally. Mm-hmm. And moving diagonally is, um, causes numerical problems because it, it's like if you, if you move in a straight line along a rank, you move one space at a time, but if you move diagonally, and yeah. if you're moving it, the, the distance you move is like the square root. Yeah. Of, okay. And so you wind up with weird movement rules if you try to move on a square grid. Whereas if you do, move on a hex grid, any direction you move, you're always moving the same distance. So the movement rules become really simple. I get it. Okay. That's why, that's why they went to the hex grids from the very beginning. That simplifies it enormously. Okay. I get that. Yeah. So the, um, the, the, it, Avalon Hill through the through the fifties and sixties was you know um, ground zero for innovative innovative wargaming because all of a sudden the, the, the things you didn't have to have like this full set of toy soldiers and you didn't have to embarrass yourself by crawling around on the floor playing with toy soldiers you okay. could have you, you could set up you know a, 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 something on the kitchen table you could have cardboard counters you know okay. you, you could have the sort of technical simulation sort of experience but it wasn't. Um, Something that required as much equipment. Right. And you didn't have to be a seven year old or nine year old boy. Right. Crawling around on the floor. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, people did that anyway. I mean, it's not like, sure. it's, it's not like hardcore war gamers have, you know, that the sort yeah. of self respect. <laughs> Warhammer guys are still, I don't yeah, care. No, yeah. I mean, it, it's like if you want, if you want it, you're going to do it. You're yeah. not going to, you'd be like, oh, well, I don't want anybody to see me doing this because it's, when you, you, you got a really good miniature game is amazingly fun. Yeah. So that's cool. Because yeah. I, well, I like all the, the the toy value of it is really amazing. Yeah. Just because of how cool everything looks, all set up and stuff. Yeah. So, and then knocking it down. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was the that was the fifties, and then. Well, so this continued to evolve through the sixties, and the, and there was um um a, a board wargaming became a um, um a hobby that you could have. It was no longer isolated players. People started identifying themselves as war gamers. It's okay. like, this is a thing I do. And that created sort of a critical mass where you had, now you had a community. You had people who were, had, people started zines. Right. They were, um, exchanging, um, they were play by mail games where people, you know, it's like, oh, I'm all by myself in some little town in the Midwest and nobody else will play with me. Oh, right. well, I can do play by email or not email, I can do right. play by mail. And, Which um, was a real thing for wrestling and everything. It yeah. was, there was, I had a wrestling dork on who talked about how when they were a kid, they would, they, they created a character, their wrestler, and it was in the back of a comic book. And it was, do you want to, do you want to, uh, create a character and wrestle another character that someone else makes in Indiana or, or New Jersey? And so you would send a dollar or two dollars with your character and then somebody would else would send, and then they would send you the results of your fight. Is that like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, people would just, they'd mail off turns like, okay, here's a list of all the places my units are going in the next turn. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, there's, there's also this fascinating history of how do you roll dice when you're playing by mail to right. make sure it's fair. Yeah. And so there are all these systems like you would, um, people would use, um, um, 
um, stock reporting. It's a little like playing oh. the numbers. So you could say like, oh, you're going to pick um, whatever number you roll is going to be picked off of this column of stock quotes um, on this day. That, I remember. I remember. The, the, I didn't know what the hell they were doing. When I was a kid, someone was like, well, I have to go look at the financial page to find out what – and I don't know – Yeah, that was illegal gambling. That might have been illegal. <laughs> unless you, unless you were in uh, a very narrow niche of uh, – uh, That does sound a little Elliot Cation <laughs> for the world. But there was something where you were looking for numbers and it was like a lottery kind of thing. Yeah. Is that illegal gambling? Well, well, yeah, so, so, so the numbers illegal. game the – yes. number, the, if you've heard of the numbers game, the numbers game is um, a, a variety of illegal gambling okay. where – um, it's like you're betting on um, you're, you're betting on public numbers, okay. and so you're betting on like the the final digit of the um, um, the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, um, and so which has to be random. You right. can't. It's guess mostly it. random. You always pick the final digit because that fluctuates the most. Okay, most. and so and there's other things you can you can pick. Um, um, you know, summed sports scores. You can pick um, the the, the Prices of different stocks. There's okay. a variety, of, but it, basically, the idea is you have public random numbers that you can grab, and so they use that for the gaming systems. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's it, and it had this weird. So this is also really cool. And this is one of the things that one of the, things, the details that I love about how how this influenced the design of these games. So if you're pick if you de, so if you start to design play by email systems, then you want to use randomization tables that are based on the numbers 1 through 10 or, or 0 through 9 okay. because those are the numbers you're going to get. But it's hard to generate numbers from 0 through 9 using normal six-sided dice. Oh, right. So there was this desire in the 1960s for the creation of dice that would allow you to roll the number from 0 to 9 easily because – that um, would allow you to use these systems that had been designed for play by email to play as tabletop games. Got it. And it was this do- desire that drove the importation of 20-sided dice, which eventually became the D20s of Dungeons & Dragons. The initial reason why gamers tended to have D20s laying around yeah. was so that they could play systems that had been designed for, for correspondence play. Right, so so play by mail inspired people to import D20s. Yeah, who invented a D20? Um, I wonder who. Why they were well, why they're invented is unclear. It it is. um, There was a company in Japan that, for some reason, was making D20s, and so this one guy, I think, on the west coast, I don't remember the details. Yeah, basically, he's like. I'm going to order a bunch of these from Japan. If anybody wants one, write me and I'll yeah. sell you a pair. And okay. so, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was really hard in the sixties to get dice to yeah. do this sort of thing. You, didn't they find a couple of D10s or D8s on found, Pompeii or something? Oh, they found, yeah, they found Roman D20s. Nobody knows what they played with them. But, right. How yeah. crazy is that? That's, yeah. uh, all right. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. That's, but, <laughs> but so the, 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 the polygonal dice that originally, that, that eventually became sort of indicative of Dungeons and Dragons wound up existing within the gaming community originally to deal with problems of correspondence play. Okay. And the fact that you had to have these these um randomization systems that were not dice based. Wow. How old was is Gary Gygax now? Because Gary Gygax is the guy he's who not published anymore. it. No, no, he's dead now. But yeah. how old is he uh, in the 50s and 60s? Oh, uh, he's yeah. like a guy in his 20s. Okay. He's so a young he, guy. Yeah. Okay, so he was probably born in the 20s or 30s. Ah. <sighs> 
I don't know when he was born. Right, me neither. But yeah. uh, it turns out that the internet is out there, and we can all look. We can look including you, Rangers. Yeah. Right now, because you're probably sitting by a computer. Yeah. I'm not. But th- th- it was it was it was mostly young guys. Yeah. Um, and um, but they... what, didn't you t- say that there was a picture of a bunch of women? Well, so. What's interesting is in some of these things that didn't turn into mainstream war gaming, you had people who would invent war games on their own. And there was one – I can't remember the name of the guy who did it. He had his entire naval combat system. And it was, again, something that was played with his circle of friends. And there are these wonderful drawings of these these women in these very smart 1940s dresses down yeah. on their hands and knees, <laughs> like shooting battleships at each other. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, there's some, there's some really interesting um, mixes of, of women and men playing in – Early on, it was just by a weird quirk, the sort of group that wound up starting sort of hardcore war gaming yeah. tended to be just men. But right. it's, but it's that it was like a, almost a historical accident that that was the one group that took off. Right. Wow. It's so weird because I mean, and then, and then Tolkien writes. Well, so, so this is another part of the story of D and D because right. you have not just Tolkien, you have a bunch of other fantasy authors that that feed into it Lovecraft as well. Lovecraft, or Lovecraft, a bit. Um, the Conan series was hugely influential. Did he have monsters? Oh, he I, did. I only read the comic books. Oh yeah. Oh, I, I, I recently I recently reread a bunch of the Conan stories a couple of years ago, and they're and they're wonderful. And um, yeah, he, um, he he fights a lot of giant apes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's giant apes. Who doesn't want to? Yeah. Uh, usually the giant apes are interested in slave girls. And oh, so he has to rescue the slave girls from the giant apes. That's a common thing. And then Conan gets to do it with the yeah. slave girls because that was the most porny comic book I think I've ever read in my life. There are these really great photos of – oh, God, who's the um, – um, um, Howard, the, the guy who created Conan. Oh. Of um, uh, he and his friends LARPing as barbarians oh. in Texas – Around the time he was writing Conan, so what? So Conan wasn't just him writing the books. He and his friends would get together in loincloths and run around and, and play Conan and play Conan. Yes, at the time the Conan books were being written, which is like 1908. Robert Howard. Robert yeah. Howard. Yeah. 1908. Yeah, I, uh, 19- I think it was later than that. Right yeah, about. Okay. Yeah, but but it's yeah, and it's like oh, larping before larping. Right. Yeah, just essentially playing Conan. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you if you write Conan, you can you can play you get Conan to play all. Conan all you want. Yeah, um, <laughs> Fritz Leiber, uh, who wrote Lankmar, all the Lankmar series. With, I never read those. Oh, Fawford and the Grey Mauser. Um, okay, they also had a, they're very influential with Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, um, and so and so part of this this book is talking about um, how these various threads of fantasy. Um, sort of came together, yeah, um, to to form what sort of being the canonical fantasy of D and D. Okay, yeah. Well, it's crazy. I mean, like, was Gary Gygax? Did he study classics as well? I mean, one would imagine because all of the Pegasus and 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 the great. They would cast Medusa. around anywhere for for monsters. There's, right, there's, right. there's this wonderful thing they discovered. A whole set of monsters um, exist because they um, they found a a bag of cheap. Japanese plastic toys. Yeah. And they're, they were like these little monsters. I'm like, oh, we can use these as miniature figures. So for example, the owl bear. Gurhu. Yeah. The, the owl bear only exists. Yep. Because, um, there was a little Japanese toy that looked like an owl and a bear. And they're like, oh, what's this? Oh, I guess it's an owl bear. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the rust monster also is, is comes from what's the same the bag rust? of plastic. I don't know the rust. I know the owl bear because I fought an owl bear early on. Oh, the rust monster, um, is, um, a, Pure way to um, fuck with your um, players because yeah. it, it dissolves their armor. 
Oh, it's a monster that creates rust, rust and then dissolves their, their armor. armor. Yeah. And what does it look like? Um, it, it looks like, like this little spidery thing with a propeller for a tail. Okay. Um, it, looks like, just, it, it, it looks like a cheap plastic Japanese toy. Is what right. it looks and like. they're like, well, what does that toy do? And so then yeah. they created a rust, rust monster, monster out of it. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, the, the art is always so interesting. Like I, I have a couple of friends who are who only play 2.0. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they play. Well, that's a little too new for me. Is it <laughs> just advanced? There he's just. No, I like white box, but. <laughs> I only know that word. I don't even know what that is. Is that the original? So, um, the original was brown box, but, but brown box, uh, hardly anybody has, but white box was the, the first mass release. Okay. <laughs> Before there was AD&D, there was white box. Okay. And so, so the, and brown box was just. Was oh, it was it the ch- same thing, but it was in a brown box. Oh, it was it, in a brown box? Yeah, but they only, they only printed like 200 of them or something. And then oh, okay. They, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. And then, uh, and then white box, um, is, did it come in a white box? It came in a white box. Oddly enough? Yeah. Excellent. And were there mods or what was it? Uh, there were, there were supplements. Okay. So you, you had the first three, oh, the, the first three books, Men and Magic, uh, Monsters and Treasure, and the Underworld and Wilderness Adventures. And okay. then you had the supplements, which were Greyhawk, Blackmoor, Eldritch Wizardry, and Gods, Demigods, and Heroes. Now, were the supplements worlds, or were they like sort of like a monster it, manual, or all of it? It was more just new rules they came up with. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh expansion sets. It was more just... <laughs> Is that, that suggests that they were more structured than that. It was more like, we just thought of some new rules here. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, one really interesting, an interesting thing that ties in with, um, Los Angeles, there, in Santa Monica here, there's Arrow Hobbies. Okay. And Arrow Hobbies invented the thief class for Dungeons and Dragons. So the original so, D&D came out. Okay. And people were playing it. And everybody's like, hey, we can come up with our own character classes. And so the, the group at playing at Arrow Hobbies, um, where my son still plays D&D, he goes okay. there every Wednesday night. Wednesday nights. Um, they got D&D at Arrow Hobbies. They do. And apparently it's, 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 it's a, a great fun. campaign. All right. But, um, they were like, hey, let's create our own class. Let's create a thief. And they, they have the correspondence between the guy who owned Arrow Hobbies and Gary Gygax, where he's like, hey, we've been doing this cool thing. And Gygax is like, yeah, that sounds great. And a little later, there's more correspondence saying, hey, you ripped us off. (laughs) (laughs) That was our idea. You just published it. So, Well, so be it. And uh, (laughs) everybody – but – but it, yeah, it had to, it had to be hive mind. I mean, all of the stuff that came together. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's so great about this is that it was, it was really just all these into, nobody was trying to make D and D. It was all, it was a bunch of people each trying to do their own cool little thing off by themselves. Right. And then, and somebody like, Oh yeah, that sounds really cool. And they'd pick it up and they change it a little. Yeah. And somebody else will change it a little. It's, it's really, it's, there was no overarching like desire to produce something. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very random, and and it, it was all labor of love. And, yeah, and and very, very geeky labor of love. Uh, super geeky, and created yeah. not whole cloth. Created, it was just essentially just added onto and added onto and yeah. added onto. Yeah. So Gygax is famous because he was this real cheerleader for it. And he and he would. And he would take ideas that other people had and package them. He was good at, at aggregating things and mm-hmm. at, at it being, and it being sort of streamlining and making it easy to understand or no? More just aggregating, but, but I don't, I don't think I know what that word means in this. It, it means like, like, oh, uh, here's an idea. We can work it into the overall system, okay. but, but, but actually turning it into something streamlined that, okay. that would come later. Okay. Um, but, but he was also, 
really prolific. So he write write tons of articles. He yeah. was he was this huge cheerleader for it. And so that combination of being able to draw together what this community had been doing and yeah. Promoting it at the same time, um, you know, and promoting it by hand. I mean, yeah. right? Like, like every or by magazine mi- by, or... mi- by mimeograph machine, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, he's just off. flyering people. Yeah, and in the middle of some where no Gary Gygax is from Wisconsin. If yeah, I Lake Geneva. Correctly. Lake Geneva, Geneva. That's where uh, people from Chicago bury their dead. Why? Uh, the bad guys. Oh, uh, okay. Again. Uh, something I they learned. They dumped them in Lake Geneva? They dumped them in the cranberry bogs next to Lake Geneva. That's fascinating. Uh, yes. I was raised, uh, adjacent to dirtbags. So <laughs> I know, I guess I get, uh, the numbers game and I also get, uh, where the dirtbags are buried. <laughs> so, um, cause I'm from Wisconsin, but the, uh, um, but that, how does, how does the book, where does the book go? Where does it end? Does it, does it bring it, uh, it, it current? No, or? no, it, it, it ends with the, with the initial release of D&D. Oh, fair enough. Which is. 600 pages. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was, um, um, while I was reading, I, I would like, like shout out anecdotes to my wife and she, she would keep <laughs> laughing. But there was, I, I actually, um, wrote, um, 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 the uh, the author a a really geeky fan letter because uh, over a footnote right he had this really beautiful footnote um dating <laughs> um when a he had because it's all original sources he's all gone right. back and gotten all all the all people's correspondence and notebooks and stuff and he had um, a character sheet from the mid seventies and he spent half a page explaining exactly what month that character sheet must have been created because the whole system was in flux at the time and he could right. say like well they're not referring to hit points they're referring to health so that we we know that it can't be any later than this wow. because it would have He's had carbon HP. dating this character sheet yeah yeah just and by- i was just in heaven because <laughs> because that is one of the things that y- you really do love the minutia of the gaming system yeah one and i love the, i love the um um, you love all of it, but yeah, I, I love rules, and I love the way people play with rules, and I love the way that people invent rules, and yeah. I, I, and I, I just the the particularly when it's the design is kind of marginal, you know, where it's kind of on the edge of when people are sort of like steering themselves by gut. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, sort of. It's sort of a, a so, big but, picture, and and there's not there's there's not a narrow canal of how to play a game. No, no part of what I like is that with D and D. Particularly the really early versions of D and D, you can really see through the rules to the people behind the rules. There's, there's like, there's like, you can, you can feel the hand of the designer in you can the feel rules. Their, can you feel their personality? Yeah. Kind of, or? Yeah. You can, you can kind of feel the person behind, it, like what they were obsessed with and what they were excited about, because, it, because it's so. But at What's that an point, example. Oh well, I, I mentioned well, the, the like pole the, arms. You know, the, oh the, right. Yeah. Oh, uh, the, oh, the kind of yeah, the kind of. Yeah, the, 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 what, they are. yeah, the, 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 what they're excited about and, and what is invisible to them. So that, yeah. Yeah, they, they need, they needed to, well, there was something that I was talking with Andy about, uh, where the people's shoes wear out. And if you don't have enough rope, you can't do that. And it's his least favorite way to play those games is because he doesn't want to have to keep track of how many steps the character has taken right. so that he has to go buy new shoes. And I, I forget what but he the fact that doing. some people love that. But some people love <laughs> that. They genuinely, they're just like, no, no, I want to know. Like, I'm going to get hungry. You know, like there was a video game I played on a Mac classic and I've talked about it before on this program and uh, it is called Dungeons of Doom and Dungeons of Doom was a top down uh, dungeon crawl with uh, scrolling words on the right hand side. And I've never been able to find one of those, you know, how like you can go on the Internet and find a, a 
something that's been adapted from the Mac Classic that I could now play on right, my, an emulator. An yeah. emulator, yeah, yeah. I've never been able to. I've found screenshots, but no emulator. Right. And uh, but it's there are forty levels, and you die. You die of uh, starvation. Remember, there was a Lord of the Rings um, t- uh, text game where you had to find your way through. Um, the first set of woods, which I forget the name of offhand. Uh, um, not, Mirkwood. not Mirkwood. Oh, Mirkwood. It wasn't Mirkwood? When they, they go through the, the. Oh, the one where Old Man Willow is? Yep. I think it's just called the Old Forest. I think you're right. I think yeah. you're right. And, uh, and I died there every single time. <laughs> and yet I kept going. Of dysentery, to, probably. Of dysentery. And Tom Bombadil not showing up. Asshat. <laughs> I'm like, hey, uh, doesn't Tom Bombadil show up at some point and save me? And he does not. Uh, <laughs> I just get trapped by Old Man Willow and then I die. Every single freaking time. Very irritating. Get lost in the woods, turned around. But, um, but that is, but let's talk now about the aesthetic of play, which is the name of your book. Brian Upton, by the way, that's who I'm talking with, at BB Upton. And, um, it just came out in April, the book. And, um, see, the aesthetic of play, you were talking at lunch about your favorite Parts like what what at, at game at, at GDC a game developer conference you oh, did, uh, did well, speech yeah I just did a talk at GDC uh, it's easy for me to sort of describe the structure of the book and explain how that talk fits into it right it's, so it's a book about game design but it's about how it, it's more a book about play design it's and about how play functions and how play fits into larger cultural. Movements. Oh, okay. And so the first part is very game designy in that I talk about if you want to design play spaces, what are the characteristics for designing play spaces? And I have a, what I said of, of heuristics for, for structuring situations to make them playful. Okay. And it's, it, it's very high level stuff, sort of like, you know, you have to have choice, but those choices have to change over time and those choices have to produce consequences. They're, they're very specific, sort of what I call the rules for rules. Right. That characterize all play spaces. Yeah. But then I take a step back and I say, okay, let's say that this is how play is constituted. Why is this the case? And so then I look at um, um, philosophy and neuroscience and semiotics to talk about why th- why should play take this particular form? How- why is play a byproduct of the way we as human beings exist within the world? And so, it's, what are semiotics? Just quickly, uh, define that. semiotics is the study of meaning, okay. and um, it, it grows so, out of linguistics. But it's it's about why do things mean what they mean, and how do they go about meaning? Okay, so so it's it's game design, but it's also and you say and how it affects the culture. So you take a step back from a basic way of creating a game. Well, it's basically I create a model for understanding play and then justify why that should be the case. So, for example, yeah, um, <laughs> please. There's a <laughs> <laughs> please example. Yeah, okay. This is, gonna get, this is gonna get kind of. I'll try to keep might it, it get a little dorky. Go for it. Make it, it a little dorky because someone out there is going. Thank God, someone is finally discussing. This. So, um, I talk about um epistemology, which is um ph- philosophical theories of knowledge. That's right. And I do know this, but I can't remember often. And part of what I talk about is, is there an epistemology, a way of thinking about knowledge that in which play makes sense? Because, for example, if, if you're, it's like, why should we want to play from an evolutionary perspective? It's, yeah. it's, it's like it doesn't seem to benefit us in any way. And some people have said, oh, well, play is all about learning. But if you really look at how people play, sometimes we learn when we're playing and sometimes we don't. It's not just a learning-related thing. Okay. And so um, there is a branch of epistemology called pragmatism, um, which um, was invented in the 19th century by a, a crazy guy named Charles Sanders Peirce, but has been then developed over, over time. Right. And 
it, it basically talks about knowledge only making sense in how we use it to understand the world. So, well, he sounds like a pile of fun. <laughs> um, he he was um, had the misfortune to not have enough people to talk to. I think if the internet would have solved all of his issues. So he 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 because you're was, never alone. He right. yeah he would not have been alone. He, if he came up with a lot somebody. of stuff when he was alone. And it, in any case, instead of thinking of knowledge as being knowing the properties of something. Pragmatism says it's just about knowing how things behave. So it's not knowing what things are. It's knowing what things do. Okay. And this ties in very well with science because with science, um, in many cases – You have to figure out. Right. And and with science, science is all about figuring out what things do. Right. And even when you get down to things like subatomic particles, you know, it's like what really – what is an atom? Do atoms even exist? You have particle wave duality. Are they really there? Right. It's Does not it the really... philosophy of, of, of what. Right. It's, it's the it's, philosophy it's... of how it yeah. functions. And so pragmatism feeds into this. And so if you think about this way of understanding knowledge, mm-hmm. then there are, there's a procedure that we go through to understand the world that maps on very nicely to how play unfolds. And so we have this. Uh, yeah, somebody's backing up in our neighborhood. I don't know that they can hear it, but that's fine. Okay. Eventually they'll stop backing up. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so basically what I do is, is look at if, if we have a pragmatic knowledge, a, a pragmatic model of knowledge production where we are understanding things as they unfold through a system of rules. Right. Then we might enjoy being put in situations where we can anticipate how things would unfold Easily, and play spaces tend to be situations. So it's it's about control. It's about an illusion of control in our lives. It is because yeah. well, I mean, we, we we want to we want to be in situations where not only do things go the way we want, but we know that they're going to go the way we <laughs> right, want. Right, right. It's not just it's not just we want. It's we, just soothing. It's soothing, and yeah. it's very relaxing. The, the the analogy I use is like parks are like idealized forms of the African savanna. And it's like if if you could live anywhere, you'd want to live in a park because there's, there's, there's lots of nice grass, but there's trees to hide in if the lions come along. And right. there's, there's, you can hear fresh water, which means that you're you're not going to go thirsty. But right. there, there, there's there's some food nearby probably because there's water. The popcorn and, stand. And, and so there's something that feels really right about a park as a place to be in yeah. in an evolutionary sense. It's like that is the idealized physical environment that we want to occupy. Right, because it's like outdoors, but it's also controlled, and you know that it's it's safe. Yeah, and so and so play is the is the idealized epistemological environment we want to be in. Right. It's it's a situation when we're playing, we're in a situation where the universe makes sense. Yeah. Where things happen the way they're supposed to happen. <laughs> right. And but it's not but it's not entirely predictable. Sometimes something's unexpected happens, but right. then we figure it out and we love that. It's like so it's all going the way we want, but yep. then we figure it out and then it's going better. Mm-hmm. And settling into play is settling into our idealized mental relationship with the world. Right. And it's a consequence of the particular ways our brains function. And way the way we have to exist within the world as thinking beings. Right. Okay. Was that comprehensible? That no, yeah, totally. I okay. mean, it, it it's. I think it uh, it explains to some extent how there's different ways. I mean, there's reasons why we play, and then there's there's, but but that's just part of the. And yeah. So, yeah. So, so part of what I do is, is I start with games. Yeah. With, with video games, with board games, and say, okay, here are the rules for how games work. This mm-hmm. is, these are general rules for that apply to all games 
And, uh, what are they? Um, they're basically six heuristics. Um, um, variety, sorry, choice. You okay. have to be making choices. Variety. These choices can't repeat. You have to be making just different choices over time. They right. Have to change in some way. Consequence. The choices that you make have to affect the choices you can make in the future. Makes sense. Predictability. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to anticipate what the consequences will be right. of what you're doing. But uncertainty, you have to not be able to anticipate perfectly. You have to sometimes be surprised and so things go the wrong way. And satisfaction, you have, which means you have to be able to win. Okay. Or part of what I develop in order to understand this, there's other ways to achieve satisfaction besides winning. Right. And Just some sort of closure. Yeah. Well, I... Very good, because that's yeah. one of the two other ways to achieve satisfaction. Sure. Um, so, um, um, and this actually ties into what we we're talking about previously about um, other ways of of, um, of of playing the tension between simulation and um, um, and ga- simulationism and, and gameism. Right. Actually, in, in experimental role playing circles, they've come up with three. Um, there is gameism, simulationism, and um, narrativism, and oh, okay. there are different ways. Of being successful, of being satisfied within a play space, and this is important because in role playing games, a lot of times you don't win in a role playing game. You may lose, but how do you lose in a way that feels good? So, gameism is playing to win. Ro- I wanna- yeah, gameism is playing to win, but role play when when you role play, are you talking about tabletop role playing or LARPing or both, both. or all of it? Both. Because if you don't win, but there's still some closure. So the two other so. Um, simulation gameism is to win. So gameism is playing to win. Um, simulationism is playing for what I call coherence. It's, and this is a lot of the play of make believe. Like I'm going to do these things. And I'm going to try to do them exactly as they should be done, and let's just see what happens. Okay. And that feeling of like SCA? the feeling of yeah, the feeling <laughs> of being in a role. Yeah. Um, it's a very. This is something that childhood make believe is all about. Is this sort of simulation? It's like I'm going to try and I'm going to hold my role really tightly, and there's a real satisfaction to that. Yeah. And then narrativism is um, 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 playing for closure, playing to either achieve closure or to avoid closure. And so, like, um, if if you're um, if you're in a um, a LARP and you're in a, you often will choose moves that will increase the narrative possibility of what's about to come next. Uh, probably, we, you've done improv, right? Yes. And so in improv, like, one of the first rules is, like, you're not supposed to shut down. Right, you never say no. You say yes and. Right. So you you agree to whatever they've introduced into the the scene, right? I think I'm on a bike. They think I'm a hamster in a wheel, right? right. And so they say, why are you, uh, why is that hamster so large or whatever? And then you have to go, well, I'm a giant hamster. And, uh, and. <laughs> But then you have to add to it, right? right. In in improv, is that, and that true? Yes, and that's because saying no is a closure move. You're shutting it down. Yeah, and so you're trying to find a way to move things and open them up and not shut them down. So narrative play. Narrative play is entirely is is is, is very is it, all that is all that. But at the end, when you get to the end. You want to bring, you want to wrap things up. Yeah. And then so there's got to be a way in the scene. You don't just sort of leave it open ended. You're like, well, and then we all, you know, <laughs> let's all get, get, get a beer. Right. Or, um, one of my favorite things I discovered writing this is that, and they lived happily ever after. Ah, oh, such an easy way to get to closure. Yes. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it's, it's, we're done. And we're done. It's who, all over. Who wanted a, who wanted donor kebab? Right. Let's get out of here. Right. So, so is, is the closure is that the thing that Andy talks about with the denouement at the end of the game? Well, I don't know exactly what Andy's talking. I haven't heard Andy's. You didn't discussion. hear spe- Andy's uh, speech at the thing either, because uh, I thought he did a speech at GDC. At GDC no, about I, I, I okay. no, I missed it because right, right, yeah, yeah. 
But, so, oh, uh, we could get him. It'll, it'll all work out. I think he explained it on a previous episode of The Dark Forest. It's all good. With I think with Ed Barath. Yeah. But um, no, the denouement. So, not knowing what Andy says, the denouement is super important because the denouement in stories is where play winds down. So you have this moment of, of victory screen. Right. But you have this sense of like, say, say you're playing a video game and the power goes out. So like it's over, but it's really, really frustrating because yeah. you're still thinking about it. your mind still like going a mile a minute. You're still playing, but you can't yeah. connect to the system. And so denouement in either stories or games is where it's over. It's not going to, it's already been won or lost. You've already, um, resolved everything in a story, you know, like what, what the, what the final outcome is, but you got to wind down all that play. You got to like tie up all the Epilogy loose ends. Kind yeah. Of stuff. It's, it's like, because your mind, even in, you're playing when you, when you, when you read a story or watch a movie as well, there's a, an element of anticipatory play that happens as you're leaping ahead from incident to incident trying to figure out what's going to happen. You need this sort of um, winding down period where everything gets tied up and resolved so that you can so that you can stop playing when the experience is actually over. Right, so that your mind can stop playing. Yeah. That makes okay, so and I remembered his example which was um the award ceremony at the end of Star Wars 4. Yes. Yeah, so when everybody gets their Awards except for Chewie. And, uh, or, or like at the India, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they're standing on the steps. Right. And, and they, and we get to see where the Ark of the Covenant ends up. And you're like, oh, well, we can take a break now. And then the game can continue it at another episode or whatever, but this is a denouement. Okay. Right. I had to redefine it for myself. So sorry. Yeah, but, okay. and, and, and it's super important because you've been doing all this anticipatory play. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've been working your way through the story and then you get to the end and you need that time to, for it to, to, for, to, the story can't give you closure. You have to construct closure for yourself. And so the denouement is where you're, you're finding all these little, you're doing all these little final moves right. to bring yourself to closure as the yeah. whole thing shuts down. Okay. And so that, that's a big part of the, the, the back half of the book is all about how this all applies to narrative. And okay. it's about if we have the rules for play, how can we understand stories as play spaces? And partially this is because I think it's really interesting to think of stories as play spaces, but also because we have a hard time in video games integrating stories with gameplay. Mm-hmm. And I think there's better ways to do it. But in order to do it better, you have to kind of understand how pl- stories themselves are being played with. And because when you read a story, you're actually playing a game. Yes. Okay. That, or, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and this is one reason cutscenes suck so horribly because cutscenes. Oh, cutscene. Well, in a video game, you're playing a game oh. and it's all great, and then there's a cutscene, and you're yeah. like, oh, God, can I skip this? Yeah. Well, the reason you're you're wanting to skip it is because it's hard to play two games at once. And if you're already playing one game, then stopping playing that game and switching over and playing the different game, which is exactly what Criminal Case is doing to me, uh, Andy. Hated this game for, uh-huh. for, I've been playing it for probably three years. It is a hidden object game, which is, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a, a middle-aged Facebook game. That's what, uh, I want to find, I want to find hidden objects. I want to, I want to stop the voices in my head by finding middle, uh, I'm given a tiny list on the bottom of six objects right. to find. They give me a scene, I find those hidden objects. Next scene, please. Well, there's an interactive another game in it, because Criminal Case is also a murder mystery game. And you have to switch back and forth between the two. Right. It is turned out that um, the murder mystery game is actually better than the hidden <laughs> object game. So I've become willing to play both because whoever is writing the murder mystery game is out of their minds. It is <laughs> one of the most <laughs> sexually and racially inappropriate without – it's written by 
it has to be written by six 23 year old French dudes in Paris. <laughs> we, Andy, Andy was, he hated it. He hated it. And then I was explaining to him the, the criminal case parts of the game. And he was like, what the hell are they writing? And then he came over and he was reading along with me and he's like, this is fascinating because it's ha- I mean, these, obviously these young programmer guys, right? Right. Are, programmers but they're also super emo guys so they want like like there was a and it's all supposed to take place in this fictional united states where oh, but, but they're not but they're not american no, so they're it's, it's, it's their that they're imaginary united states yes imagine that it is there was a native american scene that was like half the noble savage and half the dirtbag like they've been clearly watching too much svu and james fenimore cooper i mean it's just like a mashup <laughs> I'm like, who are you guys? Daddy Bumpo. <laughs> it's the craziest thing in the world with shamans and new age bullshit. There's like, it's like Kabbalah meets, <laughs> it's like the craziest thing in the world. But that's, it is two games at once. It's two yeah. games at I, once. And so, and so when you have to make that switch, how does it feel? At first it was crazy, but now I kind of, I'm like, cause I still want to play the hidden object game. I'm right. like, well, I would like to play the hidden object game, but I would also like to find out who did the murder. Yeah. And so they, they got me. They, they, they nailed it. But, and so, they're, but they're, by accident, it feels like they did it by accident. Well, it, it, it's just being aware. It's like if you were, if you had a, if you had a game where you had two different modes where you're like, oh, you have the strategic mode and then you have the action mode, the designers would realize that there's a switch that's happening there. You know, that there's, you have to, you have to finesse the transition between those two. Right. Which and, I don't think that they realized until they were well into that game that there well, were two probably. things. Yeah. But, but with, um, with story in games, people, Kind of assume that you can just like turn story on and off, like like, okay. like like you're playing the game, and now there's some story, and you can get some story, and then it stops. But the but realizing the way that you have to spin story up in your mind, and then you have to spin it back down again when you move away from right. it, right? And how that how that will sort has to kind of interweave with the spinning up and spinning down of the gameplay portion, right? Um, that's tricky, and it, and and we haven't had the theory to be able to talk about. Why that's tricky or how that can go wrong. I think they did it by accident because here's the thing. I finished the first game. There, the, the town, Grimsboro, right? 56 levels of, of, and the first 30 levels are mostly just hidden object and crime and you're done. But right. the last. Oh, then the story comes in. Then the story starts to really ramp up. And all of a sudden in Grimsboro, there is an Illuminati and there is some huge giant. And then. There is a, like a victory screen where there is, you finally catch the head of the Illuminati and you're like, and you figure out who the genuine bad guys are. And this has been dated back to the pilgrim days. And, and so they have these flashback scenes where you have to find victims and find bullshit. And it's like victim's body sitting next to the, 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 the stockade. And you're like, what? And, but it was, it was incredibly satisfying that first of all, I love a game that ends. <laughs> it can start up again, but if it has a victory screen and it has a closure, that oh, oh you gamist! I'm very much a gate a gamist, but it's also a narrative thing uh-huh. because it had an end. And then they're like, "Oh, by the way, you're going to take this plane over to the new Pacific Heights, where you get a new partner and you oh, get new course, crimes." Yeah. And and uh, I've given them, by the way, dime none, not a penny. Good for you. I would love to give them. I wish I. I there's part of me that's like. There were games that I bought back in the 80s and 90s that were $65 that, that changed my life. And I was like, can I give somebody $65 because I've been playing this game for three years? Yeah, I, I had to design a, a free-to-play game um, last year. And now, tell people you work at Sony PlayStation. I work at Sony PlayStation. I'm a and senior game designer. Always have. 
uh, or, or well, I was, for, uh, yeah, for the last. That's where Andy. You 13, were, yeah, thirteen years. Right, and you worked with uh, with Andy and without Andy or whatever. I mean, but the thing is, is you stayed at Sony PlayStation. Yeah, and um, and it's awesome. So, and and someone's gonna want the only like the cool games. Tell the people like. It does. I don't even care if you just worked on the cameras. Just tell them the famous games that you worked on. Oh well. So um, my my the what I'm most famous for is um, what I did before I got to Sony PlayStation. I did um, the original Rainbow Six and right. the original Ghost Recon. Oh, and, there you go. Yeah. And that was for what company? That, that was for Redstorm Entertainment back in go. North Carolina. And then I, I moved um, to um, um, out here to LA and um, started working for PlayStation. And my job at PlayStation. Um, I say I don't make games. I make games better. Okay. So I don't, I don't tend to design games from scratch anymore. What I do is, um, I'm like a script doctor for games. So, um, I'm attached to like three or four projects at a time and right. I'll give them critique and feedback and, um, fix things if they, if they get bad. Like troubleshooting kind yeah. of stuff. And I like to say that the, the, um, the more involved I am with your game, the worse you should feel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because right. because right. because if something, everything's going great, then I check in with you once a week, and I'm like, hey, this is wonderful. And if things are not, then I'm involved. More. Then you have to get more involved. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. It's yeah. uh, Andy says that because he's doing contract stuff now, right? And he yeah. said, I'm essentially hired when whoever is producing this game has dropped the ball. Right. And they're like, oh, we're not going to be able to make this deadline, so we need more people. And 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 at and at sort of this trouble. Whatever troubleshooting thing he's yeah, doing, yeah, and it's fun, and it, but it's, it's it's really stressful. I mean, it's it's um it's a little like you know having the the box of parts um to create an air filtration <laughs> system in Apollo thirteen. It's like okay, make something out of this. <laughs> um, but it, what I realized is that um I oscillated in my job between feeling completely worthless when things are going with well, like why am I even here, to feeling completely on the spot. Yeah. When things go wrong. And so it's like, there's, I, I can never find this happy medium where I'm just like contributing Aww. just enough. <laughs> I'm right. like, oh, either you don't need me or God, oh, how are we ever going to say this all this? <laughs> right. So what, um, we've, we're, we're almost at an hour. So you should, we should, um, we should talk about, um, for sure, I should tell people Brian Upton and then on Twitter it's at BB Upton. Mm-hmm. And, um, is there, and and everyone should just go get it. this has been a fascinating conversation and the aesthetic of play is on Amazon right yeah it's from MIT Press MIT it's on, Press it's on Amazon um uh, why to, did to, you to, yeah you wanted to tell the because I want you to tell I wanted you to tell the story of why MIT Press oh um it was <laughs> well, that's, well so there's so there's several reasons why MIT Press first um uh, MIT rejected me for both undergrad and grad school so this is a little <laughs> bit of <laughs> finally <laughs> but we're also, still going to be friends but also it's because uh, my, my wife is a professor at UCLA and a lot of what's in the aesthetic of play came out of conversations that we had about general art and aesthetics and culture and we wanted to build on it um she and I are now collaborating on an, on another book another that follows book. on it, where, that ties in with her stuff. Um, she's a music historian and it's, which about, I've been trying to get her on the show forever. I got to get her on. I, I texted her right before we started okay. saying you should, she should come on. But we're, um, so we're talking about the ways in which the presentation of music can be interpreted through as play spaces. And, right. and, and a lot of the actual heavy lifting is, is hers. She's doing a lot of the theoretical work for this book. And, okay. and I'm sort of like, like chiming in with my play stuff, and well, I think you're answering the questions, the oh, academic it, questions that she comes up with, yes. right? To and some so, extent. And so, part of the reason that I wanted to, to publish this with an academic press is because um, it I wanted it to lead into 
um, game studies and literature and music theory. I wanted to go broad within a broader intellectual community, not just be, Hey, here's a cool way to make games, even though it is a help. It is helpful for making games, I right. think, but, um, it, it, I wanted to, but it's also got theoretical. It has a lot of theoretical stuff that ties in with what people are trying to do in other parts of the humanities. That's awesome. That's, uh, it's, I mean, there are so many, I mean, there's ways to study, like you didn't get into game design by getting a BA in game design. I don't think they existed. (laughs) Right. I don't think they did either. I I think it's relatively new, right? I got into game design by virtue of the fact that my family wouldn't play games with me. So I had to just (laughs) sit around and play by myself. (laughs) And then you were like, isn't there a job? <laughs> like, how did you get your first job in gaming? I'm sure everyone's asked that, but uh, oh. allow me to be the one as well. Well, so I, I had, I had largely, I had given up thinking about the games as a career. I, I was actually a computer graphics guy and I'd been doing graphics, um, in the, in the nineties. What program, what program were you using that, that, that? Oh, no, I was, I was writing the programs. Oh, I, I was programmer. working for, I was working, I was a programmer. I was working for a company that was doing what, Photoshop did before Photoshop existed. Okay. And then Photoshop came along and put us out of business because they didn't need us in our little specialty boutique thing anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so then I went back to graduate school to to get a master's and um, I happened to um, have as my faculty advisor, Fred Brooks, I went, ooh, name drop, the mythical man month guy. I don't know that Uh, guy. He's he's kind of a computer science legend. Okay. Um, He, he, um, Everybody, um, everybody's famous to a few people. Yeah, if people Joe have heard of the Mythical Man Month, um, okay. that's Fred Brooks. And he's, he was a really sweet guy. And, and when I say he's my advisor, I meant that, like, I had to report to somebody. He, um, right. <laughs> it wasn't like his disciple or anything. But <laughs> uh, I discovered that I was not as good at graduate school as I thought. I'm like, okay, master's, I'm going to get it out. And he happened to be involved with a company in North Carolina called Virtus that was doing 3D tools but wanted to do 3D games. Okay. And he's like, hey, I got this guy and he's finishing with his master's. Do you want you want him as your graphics programmer? Oh, yeah. And uh, at first I was like, whoa, you know, I don't know. I kind of wanted to like maybe work for Pixar or something cool like that. You yeah. Know, working for like this. And my wife's like, why don't you have all those like board games in the closet you designed? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did kind of do that as a hobby because I've been doing yeah. design as a hobby. I just never thought of it as a career. I was I was a programmer, and right. so then because it was just a dorkdom, right? It was and just yeah, something to do. And so then I started working for this company, and it turned out that all those years of as a hobbyist, yeah, I knew more about game design than almost anybody in the company. And right. so and then when we wound up starting up Redstorm out of that Redstorm grew out of that company, yeah, um, I was the designer on Rainbow Six. That's and fascinating. That was, and that and that was fifteen years ago or something. That was um, sixteen years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, a long time. That's the everyone I know who essentially is our is of an age where there wasn't a way in, right? Yeah. You had to. It, it's stories like that where someone's like, "Well, we need someone who knows how to make a game," and this guy's just been making them in his closet for the last twelve years. Yeah. Well, when I went to write the book, I actually mentioned this in the in the intro to the book. It's like. Um, much of my interaction with the games wasn't even playing games. It was sitting down by myself with games and reading rules. Right. And so still, <laughs> I really love this. That is, like, this, is that is serious dorkdom right there. Like, that is like, the way. One of my best ways to enjoy a new game is to buy like, a board game mm-hmm. is like you buy a new board game and you open the box and you sit there and smell it and you read the rules. And 
there's plenty of games where that's the only way I've experienced them is reading the rules. I just love what but, but that way of that, that particular dorkiness that that I started doing when I was like 12, 13, that was, that kind of became the model for my career. And so there, there is a certain amount of fun in, in the unboxing and the reading of the rules. It it reminds me of the people that I played Dungeons and Dragons with who are friends of Andy's that have been for a gajillion years. They, as a hobby, as a, as just a thing, they get the new D and D book and read it like yeah. nighttime reading. They're all they're doing is reading how stats are organized and how what what different monsters have capabilities of and and it's they're looking at charts and graphs and I'm like, well, thank God I don't have to because it's not my thing. I want to play. But, and, but but understanding why that's fun. Yeah, that's what my book's about. Okay, that's sort of anticipatory awesome. play. That's sort of that's sort of like when you're not actually interacting. When you're just in these, what I call moments of still, or the play of stillness, that was my talk at GDC. Yeah. When you're in these moments of stillness, what are you doing mentally? Yeah. And why does, why do some moments of stillness feel playful and other moments of stillness not? That's right at the heart of the work that I'm doing. Brian Upton, nice work, man. This has been <laughs> fascinating. I Thank have you. learned about, uh, how D&D came to be and, uh, and then I learned way too much about the, the, the whole aesthetic of play. People, Get out there if you if uh, if you were fascinated like I am and uh, you think that you'd enjoy the book. Uh, it's called The Aesthetic of Play, written by Brian Upton, MIT Press, and uh, you're doing vital work out there by listening to the Dork Forest and no doubt being nice to each other. So I'll talk to you later. Bye. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat, <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. Thank we, you. why don't we just call that as the end of the show?